Welcome back to our podcast, Regulation Matters, a clear conversation. I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. I'm currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Rick and Benny Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina, and I'm also CLEAR's President-Elect. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is a chance for you to hear about important topics in our regulatory community. Now, we're very excited to note that this is episode number 50 of our podcast. I can't believe we've been doing this 50 times. Uh, we've, we've been bringing these podcasts to you monthly since June of 2018 um, with a couple of bonus episodes that were thrown in there along the way, and, and I've been very fortunate to, to be a part of every one of those. Um, we really hope that our, our listeners have enjoyed this podcast as we've you know, heard from excellent speakers and, and addressed a wide range of topics. And to name just a few, uh, some of the things that we've looked at are current research in the professional regulation, uh, investigative tips from clear award winners, working with subject matter experts and content developers, regulators using behavioral science, the role of public board members, regulatory modernization, what it feels like and means to be a good regulator, and some special episodes about the regulatory response to COVID-19 that has affected all of us. We've been able to share some really great information with the regulatory community, and it's been a privilege. So today for episode 50 here in February of 2022, we'd like to take a look back at trends in professional regulation over the past year. We have as our guest today, um, a lot of clear past presidents, and you know, as I'm getting ready to become one uh, this this uh, late summer, uh, early fall, um, I'm excited to be with this number of people. Um, I don't even know that we could actually do this in person because I think there's a rule in our our regulations to not have this many past presidents together in one space. But we do have some great people with us, and uh, we'll start with um, uh, Corey Everett, Miskell. Uh, we also have Michael Salvatore. Kim Eiskoff, Jenny Hanron, and Ronnie Hines. We are uh, have quite an international group um, representing the U.S., Canada, Australia, and Ireland. So we are super happy to have you with us today. So welcome, everyone. Thanks, Line. Thanks, Line. Delighted to be here. Well, we are very, very, very happy to speak to you. And, and let me also thank our listeners for joining us today. So let's jump right in with one of the ongoing topics from 2021 and that's disciplining practitioners for COVID misinformation or disinformation. So CLEAR has reported on several examples of regulatory organizations that have in issuing statements that practitioners can be disciplined and even face licensure revocation for spreading disinformation about COVID-19, vaccines, and related safety guidelines. Now, CLEAR hosted a well-attended <laughs> webinar on the topic um, that you presented at, Ronnie. Um, so let's, can we start with that and talk a little bit about that? Sure. So thanks so much for having us, Lyne. Um, the problem of COVID misinformation, disinformation has been a problem for Colorado and many states um, from the beginning of the pandemic. The umbrella um, or centralized nature of occupational regulation in our state has meant that we've been able to address that in a more coordinated way, I think. Um, initially, DPO's response was really focused on education and outreach and just really listening to licensee concerns. So I think the hope is we're going to continue to address every um, 
licensee information question around the executive orders um, in a really changing environment. So I think, again, we're, we're focused on education and outreach, but I would definitely appreciate every other jurisdiction's approach to this issue. Thanks um, <clears throat> for that introduction to the topic, Ronnie. I think for me, the, the topics of uh, particular interest in Canada and in the teaching profession, um, because we often look with beginning teachers at off-duty conduct um, and the parameters around freedom of expression. In a course I'm teaching right now to beginning teachers, we've looked at, get, looked at that, um, that notion of, of our fiduciary responsibility as teachers, as role models, and working with uh, impressionable and vulnerable persons or students and the friction or the tension between um, that fiduciary duty and our own individual rights to, um, to freedom of expression. And we've been looking at it against the backdrop of the pandemic right now and where uh, in some cases controversial views about vaccines, about government, government restrictions are in the, in the media. So we've been looking at it from the teacher point of view in other professions in Ontario, um, as early or as uh, recently as last week, our provincial minister of education asked the regulatory body for physicians uh, to examine the conduct of several prominent physicians who have been disseminating information that's counter to the government science table. So for me, I think the, the issue really highlights that maybe as regulators, as a community, we need to better define what are the parameters? Where is that? Uh, how do we navigate the space between our, our right to our own ideas, our freedom of expression, and expressing those when um, we have a fiduciary duty to the public interest? And I think perhaps to even look at um, what does what happens um, when the public that we're charged with uh, the responsibility of, of protecting um, sees us uh, making statements that might be considered counter to, uh, to public protection. So it's Kim, and I find that really interesting, Michael. It's the same kind of um, discussions we've been having in Australia, and certainly as a health practitioner regulator, this has been a key issue for us since the beginning of the pandemic. And I think what we recognise is that registered professionals have uh, a very influential position in society. And so uh, much like um, Ronnie's example, our focus has been on really just reminding professionals, I guess, about the expectations that already exist in the codes of conduct, for example, um, expecting that practitioners use their professional judgment um, informed by the best available evidence. Um, in their practice, and that includes in the information that they share directly with patients or more broadly with the public. Um, and it certainly includes the information they provide in a, around public health issues like COVID-19 and vaccination. Um, one of the things I've been uh, kind of interested in since hearing a recent discussion with Professor Zubin Austin, who a number of people in the regulatory community will be very familiar with, and he's been talking for a number of years now about this concept of ungovernability among the, the regulated professions. Um, and I think this is one of those issues where we start to be really tested as regulators to understand, it, are we looking at that? Are we looking at that blurring of the barrier between cutting edge practice, which will in fact drive regulatory reform, um, and the concept of, of ungovernability, those who are not susceptible to the usual regulatory tools around guidance and influence and 
um, you know, coming back to the to the centre, if you like, of, of expectations. And for me, what that means is as a regulator, we've had to think about the full scope of our regulatory toolbox, starting from that place of influence and education, but ultimately for some practitioners needing to look at the, the extreme uh, opposite end of the scale, I guess, and whether um, removing somebody's right to practice is in fact what's necessary to fulfil that public protection mandate. So in Ireland and in, in Europe, um, we've, you know, I've been looking at, into this and I did a little bit of research into what's been happening. I mean, I think we also, you know, of course, as regulators, we all remind healthcare regulators, we're reminding people about their requirements to meet under the uh, codes of professional conduct and ethics. But I think it is quite fascinating if we look at the Nursing and Midwifery Council in the UK, who regulates 745,000 nurses. There's been one strike off because of this, and there's been a, no, a smaller number of cases that have been referred to them. And the General Medical Council, who have over 300,000 registrants, um, of which they would generally receive about 8,500 8, complaints a year, 1,500 going into hearings. There's been about estimates between three and seven doctors who have been complained about. And there was one case where they were actually did find against a, a GP, but actually when it went into the court, which happened in the end of December, they, the, the judge has gone away to consider whether his rights uh, to freedom of speech have been Im impacted or not. So I think it's, it's, it's quite an issue, a moral issue for people. Um, but I think we have to put into perspective as to the numbers of our health and social care professionals who are just getting on with work and, you know, using their, the codes of conduct and the guide. Um, but I came fascinated. I'd love to hear more about uh, Zubin Austin's Ungovernable, because, of course, you know, these are the numbers that give you the absolute headaches not the thousands and thousands who are working well. Well, thanks, Jenny. Well, you know, another trend that continues to get attention, you know, particularly here in the States, um, is mobility. Um, in 2021, several states enacted uh, universal licensing laws or joined licensing compacts. Um, 2021 also saw the beginning development of five new licensure compacts. So what examples are you seeing as jurisdictions address mobility of licensing professionals? And maybe we'll start from with the Australian um, uh, you know, perspective first. Uh, so Kim, uh, why don't you start on that and then anybody else that wants to jump in afterwards. Thanks, Lyon. So certainly as far as uh, the majority of health professions go, I guess many people think that Australia has kind of nailed this issue of mobility because um, with the creation of our national registration scheme in 2010, uh, professions across the 16, uh, practitioners across the 16 regulated health professions in Australia um, register once and can practice anywhere in the country. So one registration fee, one set of standards, um, one regulatory agency supporting the regulatory boards for each profession. Um, so internal to Australia, those challenges of mobility around recognition and registration um, are solved. But I think what we are experiencing as are most health regulators around the world is an emerging um, health workforce crisis, really, mm -hmm. only to respond to the immediate emergency of COVID. But looking into the foreseeable future, we can see a really significant health workforce crisis and Australia, like many other countries, we don't actually produce sufficient health practitioners within our, our borders to meet the needs of our healthcare services. So we look internationally. Uh, and I think one of the questions I have is whether 
health professionals are going to continue to be mobile internationally. And if they're not, then how do we solve that local crisis? Um, and then on the flip side, I think we're seeing really innovative models of care emerging. So having practitioners working offshore is not unusual. So in Australia, we're in a different time zone and uh, people have taken advantage of that. So um, there have long been services where scans that are taken in Australia during the day are read overnight in the UK and the results are available the next morning. Um, that seems fine. Um, but more recently, we've seen things like practitioners running the emergency department of remote hospitals um, entirely offshore. So practitioners who have never set foot in Australia running these critical parts of our healthcare service. Um, we don't have extraterritorial jurisdictions, so we can't actually regulate those practitioners. And that has thrown up um, a range of interesting questions for us, again, thinking about our public protection mandate. Who, who's responsible for public protection in those kind of models of care? So I think they're emerging challenges that many, in certainly in the healthcare sector, are going to be paying attention to. So I would just add for Colorado, like we've seen a little bit of everything, right? We've seen where we're part of every compact that the United States has. Right now we have the new LPC, the licensed professional counselors. Um, they have the new compact. We're seeing others coming our way for sure. Um, we also saw a new piece of legislation last year um, with House Bill 1326, where we created our credential portability program. So we're making sure that applicants can come in and we're trying to make mobility a focus, but for sure, even with our, our, our um, work on military um, licensure or military spouses, they're able to come in for free for three years. So I think we've had a ton of work in this area for sure. Thanks, Ronnie. Um, I suppose I'm going to take the broader picture. I think it's quite interesting and very scary when you look at the estimates of the need for healthcare profession as designed by the WHO. So, for example, the WHO is actually saying that there, it's likely that there's going to be created an extra 40 million new healthcare jobs by 2030. But in fact, we will still be 18 million healthcare professionals short. And if I bring that down, they're estimating there will be a shortage of 9.9 .9 million of physicians, nurses and midwives. So there are very big challenges. And then you actually look at the impact of the areas and where, you know, as Kim has said, they're not producing enough doctors in the Europe. We're the same. We're looking at people coming from other areas and the impact that's going to have on the provision of healthcare. So that's really very, very worrying. And even within Europe, for example, in Finland and in Ireland, we have between four and five nurses per physician, whereas areas like Greece and Georgia have got one nurse per physician. So um, for every physician, so there's a, there's a whole issue. And certainly we are seeing moves to how we're delivering our healthcare to moving it away and bringing much more uh, in involvement of assistants and other type of personnel, uh, personnel, which I think is something we're going to have to look at worldwide on that. In Europe, it's quite interesting in that we are... Um, you know, looking at mobility in Europe and the, the um, plan, you know, we have this uh, um, uh, recognition of qualifications trying to be simple to simplify it, although on the ground it's not so simple. Um, but I think the biggest change we've seen is Brexit. 
uh, where, for example, among the medics, uh, there's been a drop in um, doctors. I think they, they have about 9.2% are overseas doctors in the UK, which is the lowest they've had since 2012. So you can see that there are some changes being made. From a nursing point of view, the, the European nurses have reduced their numbers, but they have increased from coming from the Philippines and, um, and uh, India. So I think across... Uh, Across the world, we are feeling this, that there is a shortage, uh, particularly as our population in the older areas like the States, Canada and Australia and, our, and the UK, our populations are aging. But we're pulling from, um, you know, India and Africa and Philippines and places like that. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a lot more conversations we have to have about this. Mobility is, it is not, it's not equal. Um, in that the richer countries are probably pulling people out of the health services in the, in the poorer countries. So that's also another problem. So I think this is, this is a real challenge that we are going to be dealing with for quite a long time. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's one of those things, even like just in trying to increase access to care for underserved areas, uh, you know, that was always, uh, you know, like from the dental board perspective uh, in North mm -hmm. Carolina, you know, we would allow credentialing uh, of practitioners so that they could come to those uh, underserved areas. And they all usually ventured to the, the larger metropolis, metropolis areas. So um, it's certainly a, an ongoing issue that I think we will continue to look at. Now, I think regulators journey, and I think this is a great word for that journey, um, to address diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, kind of you know started really in 2020 and, and it really kind of became a focus in 2021. Um, and that's been evidenced by our strong interest in clear presentations that we've done, surveys that we've sent out, as well as conversations around the issue of DEI. Regulators should continue to learn you know, more from each other as they navigate, again, this journey. Um, so what examples are you seeing as regulators um, of, of addressing DEI? And, and again, let's start from the Australia. Thanks, Lyon. Yeah, so um, as a national regulator, we've actually been on this journey for a number of years, since, you know, actively so since about 2017, um, and working with uh, a number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peak organisations, academics and individuals to understand the, first of all, to understand the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the healthcare system um, and uh, to think about what we as a regulator could do to try to ensure that uh, the healthcare system and healthcare delivery in Australia is safe so that patient safety is the norm for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and, and it is delivered in a way that is culturally safe with cultural, cultural safety being determined by those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the patients. Um, so we've actually, we actually have a published Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and cultural safety strategy uh, as a scheme um, that's supported by a scheme-wide, so boards and APRA statement of intent about what we um, are setting out to do. Um, and then internally as an agency, we have a reconciliation action plan, um, which is about what we as an agency are going to do in the way we operate our own business, if you like, um, including an employment strategy and a very uh, direct strategy to um, ensure that there, are, there is stronger Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representation on our regulatory boards. And I think having been on that journey for a number of years, probably positioned 
us well in the pandemic to respond when it became clear that um, the, our Indigenous Doctors Association was raising concerns that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were being denied safe healthcare at the beginning of the pandemic and being denied testing on the basis of racial stereotypes about um, lack of self-hygiene control and those sorts of things, for example. So our CEO on 17th of April 2020 um, published a statement which was absolutely clear to say that there is no place for racism in healthcare in this country, um, that racism from registered health professionals will not be tolerated. Um, and the statement really encouraged people who'd experienced concerns to raise those with the regulator, and again, provided a reminder to practitioners that um, the codes of conduct with which they are expected to comply um, quite clearly condemn discrimination of any kind and racism in practice. And I think um, it's been the engagement over a number of years with those peak bodies and key individuals that positioned us to be able to make such a strong and clear statement at a critical time. Sorry, thanks, Kim. That's really very, very interesting. We are in a smaller way moving. And uh, the only thing I wanted to bring up was the interesting, the makeup of our boards and our registr uh, council. So currently I have, I run 12 boards uh, for different professions and I have a council. Um, and actually what's interesting for us is what everybody's trying to work towards 40% of the boards being male or female. And we're missing that on many bases because actually most of ours are female, which I suppose is understandable because most of the professions are female. So that, that's quite an interesting one. So we've been talking to the, uh, we, we're very lucky we have what's called a public appointment system. We've been talking to them about the need to consider the balance, but also representative from people with disabilities, uh, different sexual orientation, um, uh, you know, different uh, ethnic areas. So I think it is, it's, it's, it's a, for me, it's a start of that journey, but I think it's really an important part for us to do. And we are looking to do much more work with our registrants on, on how we're going to try and look at DUI and how we'll bring that much more into the foe. It's not as it's not as, as big an issue in Ireland um, as it would be, you know, as you've had in the States. So it's been great learning for us, but it is something we need to st have that start that conversation. We have um, a, a lot of we have quite a, a large Nigerian community that have come to live in Ireland in the last 15 or 20 years. And it's marvellous to hear these Nigerians with these wonderful Irish accents and blending music and all doing all this fantastic stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 a it's a topic that we are starting to work on, but we're not really very well developed. In. Thank you. Jenny, I think that is so interesting. This is Corey Everett Miskell. Um, I just want to provide kind of like that, that United States perspective. I really appreciate that you're looking at the profile of your professions to look at if they're, if they're overrepresented by one group or underrepresented by another group. And I think that's work that all of us need to be doing. Um, as it relates to the United States, I'd like to put forward, um, you know, I think there was, I would be remiss, let's say, if we did not mention a presentation by Dr. Peter Blair at uh, CLEAR's recent winter symposium which presented some really intriguing findings from his research about um, the, the leveling effect that licensure has on pay inequities. And that it particularly helps reduce the wage gap between white men and women and people of color, particularly black men. I think that was really intriguing looking, pointing to some of the benefits that licensure uh, brings to the table to help address DEI concerns. 
Uh, as it relates to the United States, we also, um, we incarcerate more people than other countries do. And so we also need to be looking at what type of barriers are we erecting for people that are perhaps misrepresented or, or um, more affected by other policies outside of licensure. So for example, um, communities of color are more likely to be incarcerated if we're um, creating extra barriers for people with criminal convictions that has an impact on the overall profile of the profession and the ability for somebody to be served by someone that looks like them and has shared experience. Well, thanks for that perspective as well. So I know that um, there's been initiatives to reduce regulatory burden um, and that continues to gain momentum over the course of 2021. Um, there have been a lot of jurisdictions that have been reviewing their regulated professions and occupations to identify regulations that are maybe not no longer necessary and could be eliminated. And that we've done several of that uh, boards in North Carolina for that. But there's also a trend towards reducing barriers for those with a past criminal record. So what examples are you seeing um, related to reducing barriers to licensure? And, and uh, Michael, let's, let's, let's start with you. Thanks, Lauren. And as I was listening to my colleagues respond to one of the earlier uh, questions, I think this, you know, this discussion complements that discussion of mobility. And it was thoughtful about some of Kim's comments about the needs, uh, given the strain the pandemic has placed on professions generally, and especially in healthcare. Um, one perspective that I would bring to the topic um, comes back to the, the pandemic and perhaps a, a silver lining in the pandemic, if not silver, perhaps nickel or maybe just tin. Um, I think many professions have felt the strain of the pandemic on the workforce, um, certainly healthcare workers. In Canada, part of the strain on the, on the system has been the number of professionals carrying the burden, critical shortages in many areas, and in other areas is certainly teaching. In, in all of those professions, um, the government is beginning, or we're seeing signs that the government is collaborating with the respective regulatory boards to allow interim or temporary licensure, especially for internationally educated um, professionals who have come to Canada and who have not yet been able um, to practice in some cases because of the regulatory burden, because of the complexity of the certification requirements. And so um, we're seeing that now with uh, in, in both nursing and in teaching in uh, in Ontario in nursing with um, provisions for internationally educated nurses nurses to begin to practice before they have full licensure and the supervised practice and for beginning teachers who haven't completed a program yet to begin um, with an interim license and I think that if we're able to be creative and facilitate licensure as, as an emergency or a contingency measure uh, and to do so with confidence in the public interest I think there's value in looking at what elements, what processes can we adopt and perhaps uh, adapt as permanent models. And I'm thinking that, that models like apprenticeship and supervised practice, uh, employment-based education uh, programs or programs of professional education may help us make some of these practices that we've adopted during the, the pandemic as contingencies mainstream and not just uh, emergency measures. And I and certainly have an interest in, in, in looking at that possibility. So I might just jump in. Um, I agree, Michael. Um, DPO, uh, our division constantly looks at where we might improve processes, where we might focus on rehabilitation and what that internal quality looks like, um, especially wh where we have a workforce sh shortage. So we definitely focus on our military members. 
Um, we have military spouses coming in to the state, um, but we really are just focused on reducing those internal timelines, right? Um, and that could be challenging. So I'd be interested to hear how Kim or Corey or Jenny might have some thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks, Ronnie. I, that's that's a monumental task, right? And I think it's the the complexity and volume that regulators deal with create some um, some difficult timelines uh, that don't necessarily align to some of our workforce priorities. Um, I think I, when I talk about reducing barriers, I always think of this in like two categories. There's stuff that requires a statute and rule change, and there's some stuff that makes a big impact that requires no change to statute or rules, right? And some of the most, I think, influential probably fall in that second category. This comes down to educating board members. When we're talking, for example, line you had mentioned, um, you know, looking at barriers for people with criminal records, our board members that get elected or appointed to boards um, don't specialize in the justice system and probably are not very familiar with it. And I dare say they're also, they need this education on what other barriers are disproportionately impacting populations like the immigrant population, the low income population, um, the, the military population, right? Um, so simply, I think, educating board members to what's going on in regulation generally beyond just what's happening in their profession is very influential. I've also seen technology be a massive game changer. Um, but states invest a lot of tech, a lot of money in technology for education, for, for the justice system, for other major kind of social priorities. Um, but often we've seen kind of regulation kind of lag behind in technology. But when the state can come forward or jurisdiction can come forward to invest in that, it reduces the regulatory footprint pretty dramatically without ever touching a regulation. Um, so I think some of those are very important to look at. The other, I think, um, you know, we have examples like in Utah where the boards have kind of, or, or DOPL has done the very difficult work of looking at well, what, what rec criminal uh, records or arrests are actually uh, relevant to practice and what do we maybe need, not need to look at, right? Um, so can we stop spinning our wheels on something that just isn't really applicable here? Um, there are some other really great examples. I think Michael um, brought up a really great one about kind of like this interim licensure. Um, New Hampshire has a fast track process where if you kind of hit certain criteria, if you're 90% you're of people who otherwise qualify and don't have something that the board really needs to consider, you can get that license right away and you can continue to practice while the licensure process takes place. Right, so we still, we mitigate the risk of having somebody in practice. We still have oversight of them. We know who they are and where they're working, um, but we don't necessarily need to withhold their right to get to work while we kind of engage our fiduciary responsibilities. Thanks, Kari. I'm gonna go talk about two things. One, just about how we manage criminal records here in Ireland. So one of the nice things is a few years ago, it was made, there was a decision made, legal legislation put in place that for minor convictions that has been gone for seven years, they were completely taken off the records. Uh, so that's made things a bit easier. And I think does deal with things like the indiscretions of youth, uh, because we certainly were getting the ones where the guy went out at a pub one night with a gang of friends and did something silly. So they're gone. Um, 
And I think the other thing as well, we really, and I think you, you've hit the nail on the head about the training for board members. We talked to them about how is this going, you know, whatever the issue is, how is that going to impact on their ability to do a job? And I have a beautiful case about a social worker um, who, was, who was a mature student who had an awful record in his teens and his 20s. He turned around and he trained to be a student, a, a social worker in his 40s. And he is going to make he made a fantastic social worker because he absolutely lived that experience. He knew what was going on. He had dealt with all of that. And, you know, again, I think this is where we have to look at where sometimes life experience can really help make better uh, practitioners. Um, the European one is quite interesting um, in Europe. If you are a doctor, a nurse, um, a vet, a dentist, an architect, there's a free freedom of movement across Europe for those professions. Unfortunately, for the professions I regulate, there isn't. We have to do them on an individual basis. But my colleague, Margaret Hines O'Flanagan, is leading a piece of work we're doing where we're going to look at frequently seen uh, qualifications to see if we can reduce some of the burden on, on, on those qualifications. So we're just trialing that at the moment. So in other words, if I have, you know, 10 or 20 applicants coming from one university, why do I need to do those separately? So there are small things that we're doing and all the time we're looking to try and speed, speed up the process um, for getting people onto the register. I think what was interesting and across, I'm sure the same for everybody, you know, the temporary register were put in place to try and get people on quicker uh, to do it, to, to allow them to work with the, um, with COVID, but actually the numbers across ourselves and the UK were really quite small and really you know, did it make a difference? It looked very good politically to do that. So that's another one we've got to think about. Thank you. Thank you. Well, and, and kind of touched on this a little bit just then, but uh, another area that particularly in the U.S. that continues to see attention from regulators is reducing barriers to licensure for military members, veterans, and spouses. Um, I know that, you know, North Carolina had a big initiative on that probably four or five years ago. But what examples are you all seeing now? Um, and, and is this important issue outside of the U.S. as well? Um, so I guess let's get a U.S. perspective um, and, and maybe an international one. Ronnie, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. So um, we've, I think we've long been standing um, looking at our military members' spouse um, response, but in particular for military spouses. So we have our Veteran Occupational Credentialing and Licensing Initiative. Um, the division has gone through every single program um, and worked to enact rules and policy that really just focuses on how to make that happen. But I think the most, the most impactful um, approach we've had has been for spouses. So um, the House Bill 13, I think it's 1326, um, really did just focus on making sure that military spouses were able to come into our state for three years and, and able to do that for free. But um, I'd be interested. We've definitely been focused on the healthcare workforce, but however other states have approached that, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about military service members, veterans, and spouses and the regulatory policies that address that very special population, what's so intriguing to me is that the innovation in policy we've seen 
specifically for this population is now driving regulatory policy in other areas. So for example, this whole idea of universal licensure recognition kind of started with military spouses and, and military service members and veterans. So we were able to kind of cultivate that within the smaller population and then look at how does this uh, apply to the broader population and solve other problems. So I think, you know, this is a, a topic we've been dealing with for years, as Ronnie has mentioned, this goes back to like, you know, the early 2000s. Um, and now I think this year we've really seen um, seen that kind of shift to look at how do we share this um, across the broader spectrum. That underscores for me this point that if we look at how do we reduce unnecessary barriers to licensure for everybody actually helps spouses and military service members and veterans. And where much of that work is starting to be focused is looking at where are some of these spouses um, or the military service members actually applying for licensure. Um, so broadly, I think Ronnie's absolutely right. Um, we're seeing that happen in healthcare. There's some other professions. Um, beyond nursing, we see a lot in cosmetology, in teaching, in massage, or some of the allied health programs. And unfortunately, in some of those areas, you don't have compacts yet developed and you tend to see greater disparity in uh, the requirements across state lines as it relates to the United States. And so any effort that those professions are kind of taking on to, to harmonize their requirements are really helping to have an impact on the military community. Um, but I'd be interested if any of our international colleagues uh, have a perspective on this. It's it's one that I think I think I think I think we're just gonna, well you know I think the three of us have just put the note in that we it's not an issue for us we don't deal with this particular issue so I'm afraid we can't really add any wisdom to it I mean I've always been fascinated attending the clear conferences over the years and seeing how this has moved and to see Michelle Obama's input on it and the impact so uh, I've kind of watched this one from afar so I'm sorry we can't contribute much. Well, and I kind of figured that was the case with uh, knowing uh, the, the number of people that we have on this. But that being said, it might be something that we can, you know, approach through clear communities um, and, and get some feedback back from there from other areas if, uh, outside of the U.S. that we might be able to do that. So we'll definitely have that, um, uh, you know, as an invite in our comments. So under the increased demand for healthcare services and restrictions to in-person visits due to the pandemic, you know, telehealth laws saw a huge focus in 2021 uh, with jurisdictions providing clear definitions and guidelines about who can perform services and related insurance reimbursement. Um, have there been any new developments in telehealth in your jurisdiction? And so let's start in, in Canada from, from Michael, if you would. Thanks, Lyme. Uh, there's, I think it's emerging uh, in Canada, and I was reading a report recently um, commissioned by Health Canada that really focused in the introduction on this notion of can-do, and I think that's been something that we've seen in all aspects of response to the pandemic, this collaboration, um, optimism, and kind of throwing out in some cases or, or revising the rule book when it comes to many aspects, and I think that includes um, care and, and looking to virtual care and making it um, work. And I know that many of us have probably experienced that ourselves. Um, one of the, um, the first observations from the, the report was the author praising that we can get it done attitude. And um, similar to my comments earlier about overcoming some of the issues to certification 
you know, the report suggests that in Canada, the issues that um, have been impeding virtual access to virtual healthcare in the past have really um, dissipated or been alleviated uh, through collaboration between uh, you know, private collaboration and crisis response, and I think governments being willing to, uh, to make some changes. Um, there's also an acknowledgement in that report that care is care. And I think a view that, uh, as it states, that virtual care is no longer an adjunct therapy, that it's, it is um, um, care and is a, a reality. And again, going back to my comments about the silver lining, this may be something that's here to stay where we can see greater um, access to virtual care and greater confidence in, uh, in virtual care. I think, you know, the road ahead, at least in Canada, is for us reconciling our system of provincial and territorial responsibility for healthcare and a national or pan-Canadian interest in, in the progress of uh, telehealth. And I think, you know, looking at that national model might lead to greater national regulation of healthcare or cons consolidation of regulators. Uh, for various health professions. So sometimes something like this, like this notion of virtual care might be the impetus that we need for greater collaboration, for consolidation that can be, I think, beneficial for all and, and for healthcare generally. Ronnie, you wanna talk on that too? Yeah, I would just, I would add, I mean, I think Colorado's really faced a challenge. I'm sure every state has, but um, where we've really focused on telehealth for a long time. COVID, the pandemic has only accelerated that. And just thanks, thanks to you, Lane, for a special 50th episode. Um, we, this is a really interesting time for us, right? So thank you for your dedication for the podcast, hosting every episode since the beginning, for sure. Um, but focusing on such important issues and how we provide services. So thanks to you. Well, thank you. Well, I think this has been a great conversation. So I do want to thank um, each of you, Corey, Michael, Kim, Jenny, uh, Ronnie, um, for speaking with us today and, and being a part of this uh, 50th episode. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Lang. Thank yeah. you. What? Thank you. Such an honor to be for the, here for the 50th one. So we really appreciate it. And we look forward to the 100th one. <laughs> oh, crazy that it's 50. No, no, no pressure line. No pressure line. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you on that. We'll definitely do that. Well, it, it really has been a pleasure. Um, uh, and I do want to remind our listeners that you can find uh, more information uh, on CLEAR's regulatory news blog um, and read about a summary of the 2021 regulatory trends. But if you've missed any of our podcast episodes, all 50 of them are available and you can catch up on those back episodes as well. Um, I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in for this episode. We invite you to continue this conversation through the CLEAR discussion forum. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that might be a great place to get more perspective um, from the military licensure aspect from uh, international communities. Um, we really would love to uh, hear your comments and reactions to any of news items and trends that we've talked about. And we'd love to continue this conversation in, in clear communities. Now, we'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. If you're new to this podcast, please subscribe to us. You can find us on Podbean or any of your favorite podcast services. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or comment in the app. Those reviews help us to improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. 
Feel free to also visit our website, which is www.clearhq.org for additional resources, as well as a calendar of our upcoming programs and events. Finally, I'd like to thank our CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson. She is our content coordinator and editor for this program. Uh, Once again, I'm Lyon Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.